says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Father, again, we thank you for your written word. We thank you that all scripture has been inspired and that it's profitable. Father, as we know it's profitable, we ask that you would give us understanding of how the book of Revelation in chapter 9 is profitable. Father, we know that, that you are the Almighty One, that the Trinity is the Almighty Trinity. Father, remind us as we get into your word today, especially this chapter, especially this part of the chapter is... That is one of the saddest parts of the whole Bible. That you would remind us of of your love, of your righteousness, your holiness, your justice. Lord, we need to be reminded also of your sovereignty and your providence. How you work in all things according to your purposes. That you know the end from the beginning that you are the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, we know that really the book of Revelation reveals Christ, but it really puts you and the Son and the Spirit on display. And so, Lord, you would help us please to understand that and to worship you accordingly. Uh, It would be easy for us as humans to shake our fist at you as we read of the carnage and the death and the destruction, not only of the earth, but the entire population that's left. Or at least a question. And Father, give us a, a better glimpse of your holiness and really humanity's depravity. And how that if, if you don't work in our lives, we will never come to truth. We would never come to life. We would never come to understanding. Really... The work of salvation is all of you. And Lord, we thank you for saving us, putting your spirit within us, giving us understanding and illumination. And now we ask that you illuminate our hearts so that we might be able to understand your word and change and grow in such a way that would be pleasing to you. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 9, and as I said in our prayer, this is one of the saddest, if not the saddest, that's one of the saddest, that's found in all of Scripture. And yet, through it, the Lord is wonderfully glorified. Because again, it shows His attributes. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you worshipped an idol? When was the last time you worshipped an idol? Now again, I'm not talking about some statue that's made out of gold or silver or bronze or perhaps even stone or wood. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about bowing down before the bones or the ashes of a dead ancestor or saint. Though some parts of Christianity, quote unquote, do that. And I'm not talking about kissing a relic or exalting some effigy. 
Yet I, I do believe that the scripture is very clear that we all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with idolatry. We all struggle with hitching our heart to something other than God. That's what I mean by idolatry. In fact, uh, Dr. Jones writes this. Idolatry means worship to, means to worship someone or something other than the true and living God. It is giving yourself to some person, some goal, some ideal, or some object other than Jesus Christ. He goes on, it involves hitching your heart to some false savior and refuge, exalting your personal, personal desires above the Lord, and serving some master other than God. Again, those last three things. It's hitching our heart to a false savior. Why? To exalt our own personal desires above the Lord, serving some master other than God, other than the true God. So I ask you again, when was the last time you worshipped an idol? Another man wrote, Idolatry in our society is not so obvious, but it is just as real as it was in John's day. By definition, idolatry is turning an earthly thing into a god and worshipping it. Now when I say worship, I want to make sure... It's not necessarily that you bow down before it in the sense of your physical. But it's when you're relying on this other thing, trusting in this other thing, hoping in this other thing, being encouraged by this other thing, finding comfort in this other thing. By definition, idolatry is turning an earthly thing into a god and worshiping it rather than the god of creation. Whatever we place ahead of God in our lives is an idol. Therefore, the modern world is replete with idols. And he names some. Money, possessions, power, pleasure, sex, success, fame. I mean, you can just go on and on and on. These are all tools of Satan. And there are countless stories in which these very things have tortured and killed those who pursue them. We must warn people of the cosmic powers in control of the secular world and call them to God, end quote. In other words, it's easy to say, it's easy to say immediately, I don't have idolatry in my life. The reality is we're all worshipers. We're all moving towards either the true God or something else in our life that, that we find hope in. Okay, that's why those different idols that I mentioned, we find many, many people are moving towards those as their hope. That's where they find comfort. That's why, where they find security. Let's use that word. Where do you find security? Again, idolatry is not a statue. It's anything that can replace Jesus in your life. Anything that gets between you and God. Anything that you consider more important, or you would say this as a statement, I must have this. Yes, Jesus, I want you, but I must have this. That's why the Apostle John in 1 John 2 says, Do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father... What's the last few words? Not in him. You can't love the world and love God at the same moment. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, 
but is of the world. And if you follow those out, the lust of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life, those move right towards the uh, idols, the physical, the things that we can identify, such as money and pleasure and success and fame and health and everything else that you want to put on it. Again, idolatry is an issue of the heart. Uh, We can honestly confess that all of us constantly struggle with temptations towards idolatry. Actually, if you say, you know what, I don't understand what you're saying, then again, you need to grasp this because we all are given constant choices of whether or not I trust you, God, or I trust this other. And that's why God graciously puts trials in our life. Because trials and suffering expose idols. Because what they do is they, they crack and they break us to say, you know what, all this time you've been trusting this versus me. Um, that's not something to get discouraged about. That's something to be encouraged about. Because God wants to show us something at that moment. Even if our first response is wrong, sometimes when we go through a trial, our first, second, third, fourth response is not right. And then God finally gets a hold of our heart and, and we say, yes, Lord. I, I want you more than anything else. I remember, uh, I mean, yesterday we went to a seminar at Family Life on sexuality, Mike Stewart and myself. And the man who had been in a life of homosexuality, grew up in a church, but then went away from, he wasn't even saved at the time. He made a profession, wasn't true. Went into the whole lifestyle, life, uh, sexual orientation, homosexuality. When in it, came out, got married. I think the storyline went, got married, went back in it. You know, he told all this to all of us. But he said when he finally broke, when he finally broke, he was like on the side of the road, weeping immensely and saying, Lord, you can have whatever's left of me. And I thought that's, that's an interesting way to point it. Because what he had realized is sin had taken much of his life, just, you know, his, uh, all, all that it, uh, the toll. But he was saying, Lord, I'm coming to you not because just for salvation, I see that I need to surrender. And he used that word, I need to surrender. And as we look at idolatry, it's a constant, uh, it's a, it's a constant um, uh, movement towards surrender. Lord, I am surrendering my life to you, not this thing. And God keeps bringing stuff up. He will. I mean, if you're an older Christian after, 45, let's say, 40 years in the Lord, you still have idolatry. We still hitch our heart to other things than, than God himself. And God breaks us and we say, Lord, no, I, no, even if you take that out of my life, I want to surrender to you. I want you to be God. I want my trust to be in you. It's kind of like Job said, though you slay me, yet what? I will trust in you. Okay? Even my own life. So again, constant struggle. Constant struggle because we're constant worshipers. And all the things that I've mentioned. And it all centers around the me, myself, and I. Okay, Because I know what's best for my life. God does not. Right? That's that's a selfish person. That's the self-centered person. But again, God knows what's best. Most most people who become wrapped up in the things of this world, again, all the material prestige, never realize that they follow the path that leads to a hardened heart and rejection of God. That's, that's the problem with the world. They don't understand. They don't, have the, uh, they don't have the illumination of the Spirit of God. So they're, just, they're pursuing what they think will make them happy 
And in doing so, it, it continually hardens their heart. They become more and more convinced that they need these things, the things that I mentioned earlier. And they become hardened. And when God tries to break that, they, they, they don't get softened to turn to God. They, they get hardened and, and they reject God. And we're going to see at the end of this passage, this, this is what the world does. Not an individual. This is what the, the entire world does at the end of the last trumpet. Or not the last trumpet, the sixth trumpet before they get into the final bowl judgment. A hardened heart, rejection of God. Now again, we all have issues of idolatry. Thankfully for a Christian, God comes to us to discipline us. Chastisement. He wants to bring us from, from trusting in these other things to himself. And he does it lovingly and kindly. You see that in Hebrews chapter 12. But again, when it comes to a hard heart, to the unsaved... <coughs> To the one that says, I will not turn, I will not repent. It is not chastisement, it is judgment. God comes and crushes and destroys. And there is a time when there is no mercy. Now that sounds so hard. That's why this is such... There's going to come a time in history and this, on this earth that mercy is no longer towards a group of people called the Gentiles. There's no longer mercy. And that's what we're going to look at today. Now again, the book of Revelation describes the wrath of God coming upon the inhabitants of the world because their rejection of God and their idolatrous self-indulgence. That's why. Again, we might expect that the increasing, increasingly severe judgments and constant opportunities for repentance through the tribulation, would result in a massive revival. That's what you would think. I mean, as people are losing, and we've been looking at the trumpet judgments, and by the way, if you're a visitor here, understand uh, we are in the midst of the book of Revelation. I know that almost sounds daunting, but there's a lot of hope even here. Because as a Christian, we see God magnified. We see that he does save but we also see this, that if a person continues to reject and reject and reject, there comes a day when the God closes the door on mercy. So again, I think we can all learn from, from what this uh, book, this chapter, uh, says to us, to us all. Again, you would think that they would turn. I mean, if you saw... If you saw around you people dying because of judgments and you knew it was from God, wouldn't, you, wouldn't that soften your heart? Wouldn't you say, Lord, I, I don't want to die. I, I want you. I want to go towards you. I want to move towards you. I want to receive Christ. And yet just the opposite happens. Because of the depravity of the heart, because of the hardness of their heart, they reject God. And it really speaks, to, uh, you know, speaks of Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who could really know the human heart? And then he actually gives us the answer in verse 10, the next verse. I, the Lord, search the heart. See, I can't know my own heart completely. I have, I have glimpses of my heart. And quite honestly, when, I, when God gives me glimpses of my heart, sometimes I'm terrified. Really? That's me? That's what I think? That's what I feel? That's what I say? That's what I want to do? Who can know the heart? I, the Lord, know the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. And so God, in this, and let me just get you right up to speed, um, the, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, takes the scroll, starts 
uh, undoing each seal, and there were seven seals that, that sealed the scroll, and one seal, two seal, three, four, five, six, seven. When he did the seventh seal, out of that came seven trumpets. We are now in the sixth trumpet. The first four trumpets were judgments against the earth, the land, the ocean, the sea, and the heavens. And we looked at that in chapter 8. And then in the first part of chapter 9, we saw the fifth judgment. And remember, the, de- the, the, the bottomless pit was opened up and demons came out, and, as it were, locusts. Locusts because it was like locusts. In other words, they just came out in a horde and they just, they just did mass destruction. But they were not allowed to kill, only to hurt, just to cause pain. That's very gracious, by the way. Now think about what he's... When they came out, the horde of demons... In the first part of chapter 9, they weren't allowed to kill. Why? Because the pain should do something. When I'm in pain, it should drive me towards God. That's God shouting to me. Before he sends the sixth trumpet, which is death, he sent pain. Trying to get their attention. Wanting people to turn. I said something wrong last week, though. And after I said it, and I thought about it, and then I was in... in, um, uh, Sunday night service, and I, I'd been thinking about it all day. I said the main purpose of the trumpet of the judgments was to bring people to Christ. That's not actually true. The main purpose of the of the judgments was to judge the earth. But even in the midst of judgment, God has mercy. That's how I should say it. See, God is even gracious and merciful even in the midst of horrendous judgments, because God. Loves, God is merciful, he is gracious, so he even shows it. So the fifth trumpet, what? Pain. What? Get people's attention. Turn to me. Remember, 144,000 witnesses are on this earth at this time. They're proclaiming truth, I'm sure, exactly like this. See? I'll tell you what the next, trum- the next trumpet will be the fourth trumpet. And you're going to see the sky go dark. And they're going to be pointing to the book saying, this is God who's doing this. This is not, this is not just um, uh, chance. This is God. And we have the 144,000. We have the two witnesses who cannot also be killed, who are proclaiming truth. We have the everlasting angel of Revelation 14 proclaiming truth. In other words, if people want to turn to God, they've been given the opportunity because they have been given a clear testimony. They have the testimony, <clears throat> they've been given grace, and yet their, heart, their hearts continue to get harder. So let's look at the sixth trumpet. This is the sixth. When the seventh trumpet opens, it's going to, just, it's going to be full of the bold judgments. That's what the seventh trumpet contains. So really, this is the last to the very end. And I believe, again... I, I can't prove it, but as you look at everything and you put it all together, I believe that the sixth trumpet is probably, if this is the seven-year tribulation period and the three and a half is where the, the beast, the Antichrist, sets himself up as, as uh, God in the temple, I believe you're right about here. You're probably at the last, within the last year, probably within the last six months of the end of the tribulation. So by the time you get to the sixth trumpet, you're at the very end uh, before Jesus Christ comes back, because at the end of the tribulation he comes back. Well, let's, let's read the passage so you get the entire um, uh, storyline. And that's in Revelation 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. Remember, each had a trumpet. 
And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and month and year, now notice that they've been prepared for the exact moment, were released to kill a third of mankind. Do you see why I said that's the, this is one of the hardest, one of the saddest portions of Scripture? They were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen were 200 million. I heard the number of them. And thus I saw... Uh, And thus I saw the horses in the vision, those who sat on them, had breastplates of fiery red, uh, hyacinth blue, sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, again, the three plagues, fire, smoke, and brimstone, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone, which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. This is what's so sad. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, and i.e., they did not repent of their sorceries, And they did not repent of their sexual immorality, and they did not repent of their thefts. They did not repent. Their hearts were so hard, and they would not repent. Um, You know, when it comes to this, and a lot of this is very descriptive language, and a lot of this we could spend a lot of time on. I'm actually today going to go pretty quickly. I'm hoping just to get down to verse 20, so like in... In just a few minutes, and you know what my few minutes mean, but uh, we don't want to break, I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of question marks on this particular passage. You know, is it this or that? And I might just throw out a few thoughts, you can chew on it. I, I, wanted, I want you to get the reality, though. The angels are released, there's a massive army of 200 million, and he says, I heard it. So in other words, that's identified. They come to do one purpose, and that is to kill. Destruction. Because that's the judgment of God on, on sinful humanity. I mean, that's the big picture. We might go back and forth. What is the army? And what are the horses? And what do they look like? But get the big picture. The big picture is when God judges, I mean, when God finally judges the earth, <coughs> death and destruction. And this is nothing like eternal damnation. I mean, do we understand that? I mean, no matter how bad it is in the book of Revelation, that's just temporary. That's just what happens to this, on this earth. Eternal judgment, eternal hell are for those who have never received Christ as their Lord and Savior. But that's not temporary, that's eternal. God just gives us a glimpse. He's just saying, listen, this is my fury on display. And this is just temporary because when a person dies, they die. But now, if they've never received Christ, they die and are waiting to be judged finally and cast in the lake of fire. We have to get the big picture. So as I go through it quickly, just, you know, there might be a lot of questions, but just so you have the big picture, this is God judging the earth, sinful humanity. Well, look at the source. First of all, it says the voice. I heard a voice, a single voice, a solitary voice. And the first question is, who's speaking? Some have said it's the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Again, we've seen Christ earlier. We saw him open up the scroll. 
we see him pronounce, you know, this is who I am. He took the scroll. He stood. He opened it. I mean, it might be Christ. We don't know. It, it might be an angel. I, I tend to think it's an angel because we know in chapter 19 we see Christ coming back. So I tend to think that the solitary voice is another angel. Do you know this, that in the book of Revelation you have more references to angels than anywhere else in all of Scripture? Just You see how God uses uh, angelic beings. And so this single voice, and it says, from the four horns of the golden altar, that's the altar of incense, <coughs> but notice this, which is before God. The tabernacle and temple had a golden altar, but that, that's the counterpart to this one because this one's in heaven before God. This is, this, you know, don't think of it as a temple or tabernacle. He hears, he hears the, you know, from the four horns of the golden altar, i.e. of incense, but it's before God. This is in heaven. And, and we've seen this, this altar before. If you go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, remember the opening of the fifth seal it says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. In other words, they, they died for the word, they died for the testimony of the Lamb, really. Saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I mean, this is imprecatory prayer. This is, Lord, when will you take vengeance for us? Underneath the altar. So this altar. And then notice verse 11. And they were, then then a, a white robe was given to each of them. And it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both of the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Well, now it's been completed. Okay? See, they've been praying. God's been listening, but he's been saying, Wait. And now it's the final. And now the prayers are going to be answered. Uh, you also see that in chapter 8, verse 3. Again, this golden altar. Uh, 8, verse 3. It says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. And that's not the brazen altar. That's the golden altar. Uh, but again, that's the counterpart. We're not talking about in the temple. We're talking about in heaven. And remember, he, he grabs it, he takes it, mixes it with the prayers of the saints, throws it to the earth, which starts the uh, trumpet judgments, okay? But the way the tabernacle was set up was, you walked in the brazen altar, they would take coals from the brazen altar where they sacrificed, walked into the holy, not the holy, holy, holy. <clears throat> and the last, the last piece of furniture before entering the holy of holies, which only the high priest could do once a year, was the, um, the altar of incense. And, and what that represented was, that God heard his people. That as his people walked with him, it was like you know, a hot, a incense on a, a hot fire would, would go to the nostrils of God. That God heard his people is a symbolic representation. God hears his people. And God has been waiting for judgment, but now judgment is coming. And so again, the golden altar of judgment has gone, the, the golden altar has gone from a, uh, as it were, an instrument of mercy to an instrument of judgment. God is not always patient. I mean, his, I hope, there's a time when God says enough, let's say it that way. Enough, and, and that's where we've, so let me just break this down into three parts. You have 
demons, you have death, and you have defiance. Demon, death, and defiance. The first is the demons, the release of the four demons. He says, release the four angels. And this is a command, it's an imperative. It's, a, it's an in the aorist tense, which means at a point in time, release them. So the command is given. These four wicked angels are going to be released. And you say, well, how do you know they're wicked? It just says four angels. Well, you only bind angelic beings if they're wicked, right? I mean, if they're the holy angels, there's nowhere in Scripture that says that the holy angels are bound. Why would you bind those who do God's will? But these are wicked because they need to be released because they have been bound because they are wicked. You see the logic there? But notice, they're at, bound at a certain place at the great river Euphrates. And maybe, honey, do you have the great river Euphrates? And again, we know this from the Iraq war and stuff, but Kuwait. And the, it goes all the way up into Turkey, Mount Ararat, I think is where it starts. I think it's like 1,700 miles long. It's the longest river in, in that part of the world. It's the most important river. And he says, these angels are bound at the river Euphrates. I don't know what all that means. All I do know is this. There's some things that are about uh, uh, this area of the world. This is where the Garden of Eden was, we believe. This is where there were four uh, rivers coming out of the garden. Now again, I understand the flood and you can't always, everything didn't get re- reset exactly. But if, if it's true that the Garden of Eden is here, the first sin was here, the first murder was here, <coughs> the Tower of Battle, Babel was there, Babylon. And the mystery religions and Babylon created the false religions. There was a lot that happened here, and that's perhaps why they're bound at the river Euphrates, these four wicked uh, higher-up angels. Okay, the, 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 They're the generals, as it were. In fact, one guy said this. I thought it was interesting. He said, maybe these four represent the four major uh, world powers up to that point. Remember when we did Daniel, we saw the, uh, the image of Nebuchadnezzar, remember, and, and the head was like gold that represented Babylon and then Persia, Greece, and Rome. And maybe these angels, because they all uh, repre- were involved in this area, maybe each one of those wicked generals, if you will, uh, were the instigators behind those four world powers. Okay? Um, uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. I'm not going too far. I'm not going to go to the wall for that one, but it's all I know is this. Release the four angels. They have to be wicked, and they have to be on the higher echelon. And notice, the plan is executed. So the four angels who had been prepared, that's in the perfect tense, that, that points back to a previous completed action in the past. In other words, this is, this see, you see God's sovereignty here. Because who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. It points right back to God's sovereignty. God is in control. They've been chained. They've been chained for a time frame. And they've been chained for a purpose. And now the purpose is going to come to completion. So it points to God's sovereignty. The four angels and the army they lead will be especially prepared for the, bat, or for the day of battle that follows. This is, again, God's sovereignty, his providence, his timing. 
I mean, it shows all this. And, and as we said earlier, the, all the book of Revelation, you know what it's really doing? I mean, it's, what are the first few uh, words in, the, in, in Revelation chapter 1? The revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing. This is who Jesus Christ really is. The world has got him wrong, right? I mean, what, is the, what does the world see in Jesus Christ? A buffoon, maybe a good teacher, maybe a good example. Certainly not Lord. Certainly not sovereign. Certainly not creator. Certainly not sustainer. The revealing. And so John uses through the Spirit, through Christ, through the Spirit, through John, we know, wait, this has all been prepared. God is executing it on his timetable, not ours. So it's been prepared and we see his sovereignty, his power, his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. It's all on display. And then, and then we find out why they were released. And then the end, verse 15, they were released to kill a third of mankind. Wow, a third. And if you start, I, I did a little bit of research. Uh, as, as of July last year, there was 7.3 billion people. 7.3. Because I've asked this. Last week I said, how many people are in the world? I don't know. Well, they did the, they, they estimate about 7.3. Let's say in the tribulation, or excuse me, in the rapture, that about a th- maybe 0.3 billion leave. 300 million. Are there 300 million Christians in this world? Well, I don't know. I mean, if they walk around with a C, it'd be great. But we don't know. But let's say there, you end up with 7 billion, you know, 7 billion people. Well, that means... When the first, when, when uh, seal number four hit, and it says a quarter of the world's population died, that would be about 1.6. So now you have 1.6 billion gone. And now a third of the remaining 75% is about 1.6, 1.7. I mean, it depends on, again, I'm very, all I'm saying is, one, half of the world's population at the end of this trumpet judgment is going to be killed. And the, and the cumulative of that is around 3.5 billion. Those are souls. Those are people. Those are people who will spend eternity in hell if they never receive Christ. But why? God is judging because God is holy and just and he is on display. And he's going to show the world that though they have, they have blasphemed him all these years, he hasn't forgotten it was just his patience and his forbearance why he didn't judge immediately. What does uh, Ecclesiastes say? Because, uh, because, uh, because an execution on an evil deed is not uh, done quickly. The sons of man's hearts is fully intent to do evil. I, I really butchered that, but you get the point, right? It's Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because someone does something bad and God doesn't immediately strike them dead, you know what it does to the hearts of men? It just makes them harder. Where is your God? He doesn't care. He's not powerful enough to judge me. Ecclesiastes 8.11. So again, but now God is moving. Well, the next thing is the army. Look at the army. It starts in verse 16. The army of death. So we go from demons to death. And now the number of the army of the horsemen. Well, wait, we had four generals, as it were, the four angels, but these four angels are able then to do something, apparently to release the 200 million. And, and it says, now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. 
And thus I saw the horses, and he goes on and will break it down. But the number is 200 million, and you might say, well, how does he know that? Well, because I heard the number of them. Well, 200 million, what is in America? 330 million people, I think it is? 340, something like that? Well, I mean, if you saw this vast crowd, you're not going to say, one, two, three, four, five. No, you, no, God tells him, I heard the number. Well, how do you know it's 200 million? He heard the number. Who told him the number? The one who knows. Who knows? God. Okay, God knows. So that word heard is very important in the text. I heard the number of them. You can't count 200 million. You know what's interesting about that number? That was approximately the number people have estimated, of the entire world at that time. First century, there was about 200 million people living on this world, in this world. So again, he just, entire population. The Roman army had 25 legions of about 125,000 soldiers each. You add that up, excuse me, 25 legions, which equaled about 125,000 soldiers. 125,000. They estimate that they had the auxiliary, as it were, about the same number. The Roman army had about 200,000 people, 200 to 250,000 people. The Roman army was, at the very biggest, was 250,000. This army that John sees is a thousand times greater. It's just beyond his, it's like everyone in the world, it's like, you know, thousand times bigger than the Roman army. And he says that it's the army of the horsemen. And again, the next question is, who are these? Who are these? Some say they're human, some say they're demon. Actually, it wasn't even considered to be that these were humans until sometime in the 60s. And it was primarily because John Wolvert, a, a great theologian uh, and scholar out of Dallas Theological Seminary, in his commentary on Romans, or Revelation, excuse me, wrote that the Chinese army at that time could generate 200 million people in their army. So in the 60s, there were, was the potential, even in the Chinese army, of 200 million participants. And he just wrote in his commentary, not saying that that's what it represented, only saying that there was... And so some have said, oh, this is a human army. But I prefer to uh, think it is an actual demon army. I mean, we've already seen in Revelation, the first part of Revelation 9, the fifth trumpet, the locusts were demons. The other reason is they're led by four angels, which are demons, right? I mean, four fallen angels are demons. And, and if you notice, what comes out of them is fire, smoke, and brimstone. Those are very descriptive and, and, and used consistently for for a supernatural disaster for hell. In fact, here, let me show you one passage. Go over to chapter 14, verse 10. 14, verse 10. And the wrath of God, which is poured out full of strength into the cup of his indignation, he shall be tormented with fire. <clears throat> Again, those who don't have the mark of the beast or those who do have the mark of the beast on their head, uh, tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment. Now notice, he just used the word fire, brimstone, and smoke. And that's all I want you to see in that passage. That fire, smoke, and brimstone 
are, are understood from a scriptural point of view as supernatural weapons of the Bible. In other words, that's what God uses against his enemy. You put all that together, 200 million? The fact that uh, uh, led by four demons... And what they are able to accomplish, I think they are demons, okay? They are demons. And, and, and I did some, uh, you know, uh, numbers. And if it's true that there's seven point, excuse me, around seven billion, and this represents about 1.8, I think the number was that each of these on the horse kills, on average, 900 people. So you ask yourself, can one soldier possibly kill 900 each? No, no, demons, because demons can't be stopped. So I believe these are demons. And, and I know, you know what, uh, there's a lot of different men, you know, they, and this is where they get almost, almost crazy. Oh, no, I know what these are. These are, uh, you know, they, because it says they, you know, they have serpents that, uh, uh, in their tails, and their tails are like serpents, verse 19. Oh, no, these are like tanks. You know, your commentary, these are tanks, these are weapons of war. We're talking about 200 million here. You know, we're talking about unbelievable, you know, no, it's not tanks, it's not something man has done. This is God's judgment on earth. This is God releasing the filth of everything that he has put down all these years. Because let's face it, if God had not been uh, stopping evil, it would have overrun us years ago. Man has rejected God. God has said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to release all the stuff that I've been holding back on humanity. You will taste the, few, the fullness of your folly. So, and look at the third thing. I, I just gave you what? Their number, their identity. Now let's go to the description. And thus I saw horses. Well, again, these are not real horses. They had breastplates of fiery red, hythus and blue. Blue means dark blue, black, and sulfur yellow. And each one of those represent those things that happen. Fiery red, fire, okay, uh, yellow brimstone, smoke, uh, hyacinth, hyacinth, yeah, hyacinth, right? Is that how you say it? Hyacinth? Uh, blue, that's smoke. So I mean, in other words, the breastplate of fiery red, blue, and yellow is fire, smoke, and brimstone. And brimstone is the rock, by the way, when ignited, produce a burning flame and suffocating gas. As John MacArthur said, I think this is correct. Those are the very colors and features of hell. Those are the features of hell. That's another reason to say these are demons. Again, the the heads of the horses, not actual horses, because they they had, uh, and were like the heads of lions. I mean, their heads were like lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. No, the horse, what was a, a horse in Scripture represented warfare. Um, bold destruction. And then if you look at the lion, what does that represent? I mean, what is a lion? Fierce, relentless, stalking, slaughtering. So that's their description. I, I don't believe it's true horses. That's why I didn't put a picture up. I don't want you to think, oh, a horse with the lines, you know, out of the back end comes smoke. No, no. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, no. He's just saying, listen, he is just trying to describe the indescribable. He's taking us from the known of what we have to the unknown. None of you have seen these. 
I believe we are taken out at the tribulation and the rap before the tribulation starts in the rapture. I believe other than in heaven, you will not see these if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. But notice their mission, number four, their mission. And by these three plagues, well, what are the plagues? Well, the fire, the smoke, and the brimstone. By these plagues, a third of mankind. And he repeats himself. See, he, we did, he said it earlier, and now he says a third of mankind was killed. He wants to make the point. This is going to happen. This is not like an illusion or you know, maybe an estimation. A third of mankind. Why? By the fire? Why? That, what does fire do? Incinerate. Smoke, asphyxiate. Brimstone, suffocate. Mike's here. I think Mike's here. Uh, I believe it's true that in most, many times in fires, the person uh, is killed by smoke inhalation, not by the fire itself. Is, is that true? I think I've seen that statistic. Some of you who are firemen, ex-firemen, that, I mean, the smoke is lethal. It just suffocates you. A lot of times you'll find a person that had a house fire, they'll be laying in their bed, suffocated. The fire never got to them, but they died. Well, see, this, this is how a third of mankind, you have fire, many are burned, incinerated, but they're also suffocated and asphyxiated, okay? So that's their mission. Boy, isn't that sad? That is so, it's like Chuck Swindoll when he wrote his commentary, he said, I, I can hardly even read this. I can even hardly, hardly even read this. Verse 19, for the power, for their powers in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like, now notice the word like, we keep seeing this word like serpents, not actual serpents, like serpents. Don't, don't think of the, you know, out of their, like serpent heads, you know, you see these pictures. No, no, like having heads and with them they do harm, unlike the scorpion sting, this is fatal. Although, that's what one commentator, I don't know, because maybe, maybe the sting is supposed to still repent. Sure, the fire and the smoke and the brimstone will kill, but maybe the sting only causes pain, gives them still a moment to repent. But now let's, let's finish up in verse 20. But the rest of mankind who are not killed, this is the final point, the unrepentant, unrepentance of the defiant. So we've gone from demon to death to now defiance. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands. And they did not repent, verse 21. They, he repeats himself. He's, he's really repeating himself a lot in this chapter. He really wants to make sure we know it's 200 million, that a third of mankind dies, and that they would not repent. Because when the heart of man gets hard... Unless the Spirit of God breaks it, he will not repent. The word repent is the common word metanoia. It means to change one's mind and direction. It means to change your attitude, your affections, your motivations, and your actions. That's what that word means. They would not change direction. Let me veer off a path for just a couple minutes. Because again, in Christianity, there's been this false teaching that says this. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you don't have to receive Him as your Lord. And I've brought this up over and over again because I keep hearing this teaching over and over again that somehow you can receive Christ as your Savior, but you don't have to receive Him as your Lord. But notice the connection of this passage. 
they would not repent. They would not repent of what? The worship of demons, the idols, the murderers, the sorceries, the sexual morality. What are all those? Those are actions. See, they, they wanted their idols. <laughs> they were going to hold on to what this earth was going to offer and they would not repent. What do you mean? They wouldn't turn from what they were depending on. The Bible is very clear that a person that comes to Christ... By the way, this is interesting. In the Scriptures, there's never two passages that, that explain specifically exactly how either Christ or one of the apostles led a person to Christ. In other words, there is no such thing as a canned presentation. You know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. You have to see God as holy. You have to see yourself as a sinner. You have to know that you have to repent and have faith in Him, and then you have to put your faith and trust in Him. Well, no, those are the true components, but you don't see it like it's always laid out like that. You just see the wording, and the wording is always different, which tells me this. It's a work of God in my heart, of the Word of God. It's not like I'm going to convince you. Because if I was convinced, God should put it very clearly. These are the four spiritual laws, and follow them, and you're going to get saved. You know what? No, no, you don't get saved until the Spirit of God does a work in your heart, and you're willing to say, you know what, Lord? I don't want the things of this world. I only want you. That doesn't perfect you, but that gets you in the right direction, right? You are now a Christian, and God is going to continue to sift out and, um, oh, what is it called when metal smelt? You know, refine your heart so that you don't trust other idols. But, but just notice what Jesus, Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to what? Repentance. Mark chapter 1 verse 14. Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's Mark 1 14. Luke 24, verse 47, repentance and forgiveness of sin. That's what he told his disciples to preach, repentance and forgiveness of sin. The apostles in Acts 20, Paul talking to the Ephesian elders, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 26, verse 19, Paul before King Agrippa. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. See, he said, I, I told you the truth, but declared to you first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. I mean, it's just so clear. It, it drives me crazy when people say, no, you don't have to repent. What do you mean? That is, that is the gospel call. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idols. Turn from what you're trusting in. Turn to Christ as the only Savior. Have you ever turned? I mean, Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 8, Galatians 5, that those who are characterized by sin, who never have their life changed, in other words, a new direction in their, in their walk with Jesus Christ, what? Shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet, as Christians, many times we look at our friends and our family, well, I know they're saved because, you know, I remember when they put their trust in Jesus and made a profession. That's false if, they, if their life is not changed. So instead of looking at them for discipleship, you've got to look at them as evangelists, you know, as an evangelist. I mean, that's, these guys could have added Jesus. What does it say? They would not repent. I think the Spirit of God is making it very clear 
And I think the scripture is very clear that repentance is absolutely necessary in order to be saved. And some would say, well, well, then now you're adding works to salvation. No, no. Because apple trees produce apples. So if you're saved and the Spirit of God is in you, what does the, what is, what is the Word of God say? Listen, those who continue down the path of unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because the implication is this. They don't have the Spirit of God. They've never been saved. Well, maybe they, they may have had a profession, but not true, true repentance. Turning from sin. Turning in faith to Christ. Trusting in and relying on Him. That's what we mean. So I wanted to develop that just for a moment because when it comes and says the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent. And then he repeats in verse 21, they did not repent. Now he adds, he says, this is how I know they don't repent because they didn't turn from their sin. And look at what their sins are very quickly. Worship of demons and idols of gold and all the other. You could say it this way. Anyone who worships any false god is worshiping a demon. Now, think about the implication of that on world religions. Anyone that is not worshiping the true God, or excuse me, anyone who worships, let's put it negative, anyone who worships any false God is worshiping a demon. That's all the, that's all the world religions out there. That's why, the way, by the way, the reason they hate you. <laughs> because what are we saying? That Jesus Christ is the only way, he's the only true God, and whichever you, whatever you're worshiping is false. And you can even say another layer of that, and it's a demon. It's, it's being driven by the underworld. It, it, am I correct in saying that? That the false religions of this world are, be, are driven by the underworld? Is that true? That is true. You know, that could get me in jail. That could, that could get us in jail. That could get us killed right there. I mean, thankfully, we live in a free society as of 2016. No, right? Hey, I, I'm not... Hey, you know what you're, lo- you, you, you're watching what's happening? It's at breakneck speed. Hellbent. That's what this society is moving towards. To hell. So we just have to say that this, this is where Christ is and this is where we stand. But this is the point here. These guys, people, are so committed to their gods, even when their gods cannot save them, they do not turn from their gods. Do you see what's happened? I mean, God has judged the world, the ocean, the sea. They've judged, you know, a third of mankind with pain. Now a third of mankind is killed. They will not give up on their false gods. Their false gods are not saving them. They're not doing, their false gods are doing nothing against these judgments because these judgments are coming from God himself. And yet they will not repent. They will not turn. And ultimately they, well actually I believe in this time frame, they've already turned to the, they've got the mark, the beast has been set up, they're worshiping the false beast, the the false religion, uh, and all the false religions of the world apparently are buying into it. So idolatry is the first sin. Then murders. They will not repent of their murders. For, for years they've been killing Jews, Christians, even themselves, and they like the taste of blood. That's what this, they like the taste. And then sorceries. It's, we get our word pharmakeia, pharmacy. Why do you take drugs? Maybe just to dull the pain. 
dull their senses. Plus, drugs were used to induce a higher ecstasy in religious experience. So maybe that's part of it, probably religious experience. And, hey, you see all the carnage? Give me something to, give me something to dull the pain. They won't give up on their drugs and their sexual immorality. It's pornea. We get our, you know, pornography. But here it's the actual physical act of fornication, adultery, rape, homosexuality, all the perversions. I mean, when God takes his hand off this earth, they are going to go to all the crap that God has been holding them from. And then finally, thefts. Honesty is non-existent. There is no law left. This is complete lawlessness. And you might say, what are they stealing? Food, water, clothing. Think about it. Everything's been destroyed. Parts of this world have been totally decimated. Just to survive, people will steal and kill. They will kill the person just to get their food. This is the world left to itself. This is the world that is left to itself. Very, very sad. Well, I had some other things, but I, let me just end with a couple thoughts. I know. Ha, ha, ha. Not what I'm saying, but the fact that I said couple. I'm going to have to even cut this. Three, three simple things. One, physical suffering and disaster does not turn a heart to its spiritual need. Only God can. Physical suffering and disaster. You think that pain will turn a heart. It doesn't unless God's working. The, the great preacher Donald Barnhouse wrote this. There is no evidence. I think I left this in your outline because it's really profound. There is no evidence in the Bible. There is no evidence in history. There is no evidence in prophecy which would indicate that men have ever been brought to God in great number. Now underline the word great. In great number through tribulation. Oh yeah, some do because God works. But great number through tribulation. One-third of the race may die, but the other two-thirds do not, for that reason, move towards God. Reluctantly, we are forced to accept the verdict. And this is the verdict out of Romans 3.11. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. If there's anything we can walk away from, and this last part of this chapter is this. The heart of man is desperately wicked, total depravity, no one seeks after God. Remember that when you're seeking to evangelize your friends and family. It's only by the grace of God that the heart can be changed. That gives us hope and encouragement. Yes, Lord, just let me do my little part. It's you that has to do it. But then the second might be this. Why won't mankind turn? You know, Ezekiel says this. Why will you die? Ezekiel 33. Why will you die? And I think John 3 says it best. I mean, that very familiar verse, For God so loved the world, that what? He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The one of the most hopeful verses in all of Scripture. And yet, just a few verses later, no, the next verse says, He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God wants to save. God is a saving God. But then a couple of verses later, in verse 19, it says this, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. And that's what you see here. Why will they not turn? Why? Because they, because they love the darkness. They love their sin more than God. That's why they won't turn. 
They reject salvation because they love their sin. That's why John clearly says, this is what they held on to. They wouldn't repent because of. <coughs> the, final is, the final admonition is this. Why is this written? Well, this is written to give us comfort in knowing that if we have evil around us, just know it will be repaid. There will be judgment. But it's also given to the world of saying, listen, turn from your sin because judgment is coming. But I think another reason it's written is for us as believers, again as believers, to give us a burden. It should give us a burden. It should give us boldness to tell others about Jesus Christ. Because this isn't hell. This is just a taste of hell. Because this is not eternal. See, this is written so that we might be missionaries. You could even call this passage a missionary mandate. Really? Yeah, think about what it's saying. Judgment is coming. Salvation is only in Christ. Vance Havner wrote this. And Vance Havner was the uh, Mark Twain of Southern Baptist preachers. He always had these quick one-liners, pieces that just were like, wow, yeah. So Vance Havner, the old Southern preacher, said this, quote, The real test of how much we believe of prophetic truth is what we are doing to warn men to flee from the wrath to come. See, that's the real test. It's not just what you know. It's what you're doing, it, doing with it to warn men to flee from the wrath to come. And then he says this, To believe the solemn truths of prophecy... And then make our way complacently through a world of sin and shame is not merely unfortunate, it is criminal. Yes, Lord, I believe Revelation. Yes, Lord, I believe the trumpets are coming. Yes, Lord, I believe that when judgment comes, this is just a taste of hell. And for those who never receive you as Savior... They are going to hell. For us to know those things and then do nothing with it is not just me, uh, complacency. It's not just unfortunate. He used that final word. It's criminal. You've got the truth to set them free. And no, Lord, I don't. I'm just too busy. I'm just too afraid. I'm just too concerned. What will they think, which is idolatry? Now that's, wait, we have the truth and we need to present. Are you willing to present the truth? I trust that it, I trust the study of Revelation has emboldened you to say, listen, you may be offended by this. You may not want to hear it, but listen, this is the truth. God judges sin. It may take a month, it may take a year, it may take another 30 years, but God judges sin. He's going to judge this world, and ultimately, He judges every individual. It's called the lake of fire if you've never received Christ. And you need to hear this truth. And no matter how bad you tell me, I don't want to hear the truth. No, you need to hear the truth. And we should be bold at that and not somehow back off. This is truth. So let's proclaim it. Let's stand as we sing.